Uh, good morning. Uh, we'll be continuing with church history today, uh, still looking at the Byzantine Empire and the Eastern Church. So last time I taught, we looked at the, the empire, mostly in the 8th century. Uh, we saw sort of the what went on with their leadership. Sometimes they were weaker and lost wars. Sometimes they had good leaders and they expanded the territory. Uh, and we saw the leadership often interfering in church matters, uh, calling ecumenical councils to get people to make decisions that supported them politically. Uh, and really what we looked at was the iconoclast controversy. We saw the Eastern Church torn apart by that um, with horrific acts of torture and uh, murder, other persecution really conducted by both sides of the controversy. Um, depending on whichever one had the favor of the political authority at the time. Uh, in the end, support for the use of icons won, uh, and the hostility there began to die down within the Eastern Church. Um, shortly after the end of that controversy um, came the rise to Patriarch uh, of Constantinople, uh, the person called Saint Photius the Great. Uh, Patriarch is like Pope but only the Roman one was called Pope, so Patriarch for the church in Constantinople. Um, so we're going to look for a bit at Photius and uh, another controversy that he was deeply embedded in. Uh, so Photius lived from AD 820 to 895. Uh, his parents had been persecuted for being pro-icon uh, in some of the last years of the controversy, and according to Photius, his parents had been martyred uh, by the last anti-icon emperor, uh, the Emperor Theophilus. Uh, emperor Theophilus was uh, actually very instrumental in Photius's life uh, in a positive way, though, despite having apparently killed his parents uh, or been responsible for their death. Uh, the emperor was, as I said, he was anti-icon use, uh, but he was very interested in reviving education and culture and things like that within the empire. Uh, and so one thing he did is that he supported the reorganization of the University of Constantinople. Um, he dumped some money into it, changed the, the leadership administration around a bit, uh, and he appointed this guy to be the head of the university. His name was Leo the Mathematician. He was good at math. <laughs> uh, in fact, he was uh, more than good at math. He was really good at teaching. He was so renowned for his ability as a teacher that uh, Caliph Mamun, the leader of the Islamic Empire, actually tried to make a deal with the emperor to get uh, Leo the Mathematician sent to uh, to Baghdad. He offered an enormous sum of, sum of money and an eternal peace treaty with the, with the Islamic Empire if they would send this guy. What year was that about? Uh, well, when did eternal peace reach the Middle East? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, uh, mid-800s. <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, that offer didn't go through. <laughs> Um, and so they kept Leo at the University of Constantinople. Uh, and so Photius then ended up going to the university and was a student under Leo. Uh, in fact, one of Leo's best students, most famous students. Uh, Photius loved learning, loved knowledge. 
Uh, and so it is said that he devoured every book on every subject that he could possibly get his hands on. Uh, and his thirst for knowledge continued for all of his life beyond his time at university. Uh, and in fact, he, he became so well-versed in every subject that historians uh, sometimes have labeled him the wisest man of the Middle Ages. He knew everything about everything. Uh, initially, Photius was not himself a religious man. While his parents, you know, had been martyred for their beliefs, um, he pursued a, a career more in the secular world. Um, he worked for government as a civil servant in some ways, uh, and he also worked as an instructor at the university there in Constantinople. Uh, his career got changed for him very suddenly uh, when the current patriarch of Constantinople, a man named Ignatius, uh, fell out of favor with the uh, emperor at the time, uh, young Michael III, also known as Michael the Drunkard, uh, and so he removed Ignatius. So he wasn't a mathematician. <laughs> he could count beers. <laughs> yes. Uh, so he removed Ignatius from the position of patriarch. And he just decided he liked this Pontius guy. And so he appointed him to be the patriarch of Constantinople's church. However, Photius wasn't even a member of the church. And you can't go from a nobody to the leader of one of the major churches. You have to move up through the ranks. So that's exactly what they did. First, he had Photius, uh, um, sorry, I lost my spot here. Oh, first thing he did was he made him a monk. That was sort of the bottom tier of entering the clergy path. Day one, he's a monk. Day two, he gets promoted to reader. He is now a, a monk that can stand in front of people and read the scripture. Day three, he is a subdeacon. He has a serving role within the church. Day four, he's a full-fledged deacon. And day five, he is uh, made a priest. Day six, he's patriarch. <laughs> so the fast track, as fast as could be done, Photius goes from not a part of the church to leader of the church. Literally. Uh, the emperor's bidding. <laughs> So I was thinking we're looking for a pastor. This, I mean, they got a guy leading their church within a week of starting this process. So yeah, we can get anybody we want if, if we follow this plan. <laughs> yeah. By next Sunday, we'll have somebody. That sounds like you got it done between, in between the, the, the Lord's Day. Probably. Yeah. And it worked out well. He ends up being one of the greatest theologians in the Eastern church. So it uh, looks like a winning strategy to me. <laughs> All right, so uh, having now done everything by the book to get him up to being patriarch, uh, you'd think the church would be happy, right? Uh, no, we wouldn't. And they weren't happy, the church at large. Uh, remember the, the emperor um, before Michael, Theophilus, was anti-icons, um, and Ignatius had been a pro-icon person. Uh, which meant a lot of the church saw Ignatius as the rightful patriarch uh, and saw Photius as an imposter, as a guy that the emperor they didn't like had placed in power. Uh, and so they found themselves in this funny situation. I think we've seen it before and we'll see it again with the Western church where we sort of have two leaders of the church. Um, the Roman Catholics frequently had a problem of having multiple people claim to be pope. 
So now we have Constantinople with two patriarchs. Uh, somebody heard about this situation and thought it was a great opportunity to extend his little authority fingers over the Eastern Church, the Pope. Pope Nicholas I uh, thought, ah, this is my chance to sort of set myself up as the guy who gets to decide who's the leader of those churches. Uh, at least he thought this was an opportunity for that. Uh, and so what he did, he sent two delegates uh, over to Constantinople to sort of examine the situation and make a determination on his behalf. Uh, he also was having some issues with churches in southern Italy that were under the authority of the Byzantine Empire, so he wanted the emperor to make some rulings in his favor and force those churches to listen to him. Uh, so he sent these two guys. He sent, uh, I don't even know how to say this guy's name, Rodold of Porto and Zacharias of Anagni. Uh, these two men arrived in Constantinople, uh, and both of them apparently were persuaded to support Photius instead of Ignatius. Uh, Photius being the one that the emperor had put in place, which really wasn't what the pope wanted to happen. He wanted to set himself at odds with the emperor so that he could then make a ruling over the emperor in exchange for some deals there. Uh, but Rodold and Zacharias supported Photius. It's possible they were bribed. We don't really know, but we don't know why they were persuaded so quickly. Money can be a strong uh, factor there, though. Uh, not only were they persuaded so easily, but this meant that uh, Pope Nicholas had no bargaining power regarding that situation in southern Italy. So he was really mad. Uh, he responded by disowning the decisions of Rodald and Zacharias, saying, no, they don't have authority from me. Their decision is not my decision. He also removed both of them from their respective positions within the Western Church, and then he formally declared Ignatius to be the rightful patriarch of Constantinople, and he excommunicated Photius. <laughs> he was mad. <laughs> uh, the Emperor Michael III, uh, despite being the drunkard, actually responded in probably the best way he could. He ignored the Pope and continued to have Photius act as the patriarch of Constantinople. <laughs> uh, in the meantime... Uh, sort of setting the scene here for what's coming up with a controversy. In Bulgaria, uh, missionaries from both Western and Eastern churches were competing uh, for the conversion and support of really the whole nation, but especially the king of Bulgaria uh, named Boris. Uh, each of them started attacking each other's teachings, uh, trying to make the... It was very political, really, like, oh, you see it in our debates today between... Uh, Republicans and Democrats. It was sort of the East and West missionaries jabbing at each other to Boris, you know, as they're trying to convert him. They're making the other one look bad. Uh, and one particular area that, uh, that they disagreed on and started jabbing was a, a clause that had been added to the Nicene Creed. It was called the Filioque Clause. So the original language of the Nicene Creed stated that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Filioque Clause had added the words, and from the Son. Uh, Latin Filioque means, and from the Son. Um, and so that clause had been added sometime in the 6th century by originally some churches in Spain, and it had come to be accepted by all of the Western churches. 
Uh, but the Eastern churches didn't adopt it. They held to the original Nicene Creed as it had been uh, handed down. Uh, and so Photius became involved in the dispute as well. Um, and he wrote a letter to other Eastern churches and had this letter circulated around to all the other Eastern churches where he declared the Filioque Clause to be heretical. Uh, and he also picked apart a few other Western church practices and beliefs in his letter. Uh, and as we looked at earlier, he was a very knowledgeable guy. He was, um, so he did a good job with this letter. It was a very convincing letter. Uh, he then followed up on this letter that he'd circulated by summoning a council, uh, not an ecumenical council, because it was only the Eastern churches, but he summoned a council at Constantinople uh, where they addressed this issue. At this council, he excommunicated Pope Nicholas. Uh, and so now we have Nicholas has excommunicated him, and he's excommunicated Nicholas. Um, and so we see the leaders of the Eastern and Western churches uh, formally cutting off communication with each other. Um, and so we've already been seeing it, but East and West church, the, the gap between them is growing wider and wider. And this was a very obvious uh, indication of that gap, of that split between the East and the West. Um, the status quo, though, changed rather quickly. Um, emperor Michael, the drunkard, was not a very popular emperor because he was always drunk or recovering from being drunk. Uh, so his right-hand man, uh, known as Basil the Macedonian, uh, had had enough one day. So in AD 867, I should say he had had enough one night, he murdered the emperor in his sleep and declared himself to be the new emperor. Uh, in order to secure his claim, he sort of had to clean the cabinet, if you will, so he got rid of Photius as the patriarch um, and had him exiled to a monastery, and he brought Ignatius back in to be the patriarch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he then summoned another church council, uh, the emperor did, the new Emperor Basil, uh, which was called the Anti-Phocian Council. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't personal, but they reversed all of the decisions that Phocius's council had made, including the excommunication of Pope Nicholas. Uh, so this sort of calmed things down, settled the tension between Byzantine and Rome. Um, but it didn't settle the filioque issue because Photius had sent that letter all around and it had made its point. And it was very well written and the churches agreed with it, whether he was the leader or not. They, they were convinced that this filioque clause was heretical. Um, during his time in exile, Photius uh, wrote an entire book on the topic called the uh, Treatise on the Mystagogia of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mystagogia means the, the revealing or the understanding of the mystery. So it was a book on understanding the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Uh, modern scholars consider it to be his greatest uh, theological masterpiece. Um, so before we continue the narrative and see what happens, I want to actually look at this clause and the theology behind it. Um, previously explained, the basic difference was the inclusion and exclusion of that clause um, and the concept of the source of the Holy Spirit. Is he the Holy Spirit who proceeds from God the Father, or is he the Holy Spirit who proceeds from both the Father and the Son? Uh, Eastern theology focuses on, uh, in particular, they focus on the persons of the Trinity 
and teach that God the Father is the unique source of the divine nature, divine essence. The Son and the Spirit are both divine, and, and they are all one God, because their nature, their essence, comes from the Father. This is Eastern theology's teaching. So the Trinity is three different persons, one, two, three, all sharing one divine nature, which is the nature that comes from God the Father. He is the source of it. The Son and the Spirit possess the fullness of the deity of God in unique ways. The Son, uh, through what they call eternal generation, meaning he's, he's the only begotten, he's the one generated by the Father, and the Spirit, uh, as the, the Nicene Creed said, through his eternal procession, he proceeds from the Father. So to the Eastern Church, uh, when they hear the Western Church saying that the Spirit also proceeds from the Son, it's like they're making the Father and the Son two separate gods with distinct natures and saying that the Spirit proceeds from each of them. And that's why they saw this as heretical. They, uh, it was effectively destroying the unity of the Trinity in their minds and in their understanding of how the Trinity is. Uh, Western theology, on the other hand, tends to focus first on the nature of God as opposed to the persons. Uh, so we think of one divine nature being manifested in the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All are equally and fully God, distinct persons with one single divine nature. Uh, because this nature is first in our thinking, we don't typically see a problem with saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son, because the Son has the same divine nature as the Father, and the same divine nature that the Holy Spirit proceeds from and is himself the fullness of. Uh, so it kind of begs the question, if the Western Church doesn't really have a problem with, um, with the way the creed was originally, why were they so insistent on adding this clause? Uh, and that goes back to the, the issues they were having earlier that we talked about with the Son being equal with the Father. Uh, so the clause was their way of really hammering that point home, saying that the Father and the Son are equal. Um, the West argued that if the Son was not also the source of the Holy Spirit, it would make him unequal with the Father. The East responded to this argument by saying, well, then according to your logic, that makes the Son and the Father equal, but the Spirit less than them. <laughs> so you've got a problem with that logic. <laughs> um, this controversy really brought to light some key differences in the focus between the theology of the Eastern and Western churches. Uh, one on the nature of God and the other on the persons of the Trinity. Uh, so really to summarize it, the East sees three persons with one divine nature. The West sees one divine nature manifest in three persons. Uh, I would argue that neither of them is wrong. The problem was arguing about it and, and making it such a, a dividing point. So, having hopefully explained that, I guess before I continue the narrative, any questions on that? Right. right. Doesn't, doesn't need to happen to make Christ equal. Exactly. But for the Western church, that had already been an issue, and this was part of their support for that. So, exactly. yep. Speaking of, we, you know, finally have Christmas lights up at the right season. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it does. And it's 
All right. Oh, back to the story then. Uh, looking at Phocius, um, because his story isn't over. He got exiled, but things change. Uh, Ignatius struggled to lead the church in Constantinople uh, to the satisfaction of the emperor Basil, um, which caused the emperor to sort of reconsider Phocius. Uh, he didn't get rid of Ignatius, but he released Photius from his exile and brought him to the palace to be the private tutor for his sons. Uh, during his time there at the palace, Photius, then interacting with the emperor and his children and with Ignatius, sort of reconciled with all of them and, and became on good terms with all of them, won their favor. Uh, in fact, when Ignatius did eventually become ill on his deathbed, uh, it was Photius that he wanted there at his side, ministering to him in his final days. Bless you. Thank you. So where these two had once been enemies of a sense, not, not that they really argued, but they were on opposite sides of uh, political things, they were now friends at the end of Ignatius's life. Uh, so after Ignatius passed, Photius was again appointed to the position of patriarch. Didn't have to go through the steps again. That had already been done. Um, he was qualified now, yes. Uh, two years later, he summons another church council, which undoes all of the anti-Phocian council's decisions. So we're back to his previous council's ruling, uh, which means I think he re-excommunicated Pope Nicholas as well. Um, interestingly enough, shortly after that, Phocius became effectively the ruler, not only of the church there, but also of the entire empire. Um, around AD 879, uh, Emperor Basil's favorite son named Constantine died, uh, and that drove Basil mad. Um, he felt like God was punishing him for having murdered the previous emperor, uh, and now had taken his favorite son, and so it sort of drove him insane. He continued to be the ruler, but now Phocius, uh, in position as head of the church there, uh, got to make all the decisions for the next almost a decade. Um, he ruled from the background until Basil died in AD 886, uh, and at that point, uh, Basil's son Leo became the emperor. Uh, Leo, of course, had his own ambitions, and so one of his first acts was to depose Phocius as the patriarch because he must have been really tight with his brother, he wanted to make his brother Stephen the patriarch. So now uh, some of the sons of Basil, Leo and Stephen are running the empire. Uh, Photius again gets exiled to a monastery, which I think is interestingly kind. You know, it wasn't like exiled to some island or put in dungeons. I mean, twice it was just, eh, go to a monastery. Okay, <laughs> you probably liked the break. <laughs> Uh, and so he remained at a monastery there for nine years until his death. Uh, upon his death, uh, his body was returned to Constantinople. He was declared a saint, and he was entombed in the Hagia Sophia there in Constantinople. Uh, many of his writings uh, survive to this day, so we're able to read and, and understand what Photius thought and taught. Um, and his stuff is regarded as fairly authoritative in the Eastern Church. Uh, much like we might think of the writings of Augustine or Martin Luther or things like that. Uh, not, not scripture authoritative, but things that help explain our doctrine. They saw uh, Photius' stuff in the same way. And so uh, 
that sort of summed up or, or concluded the Filioque controversy. So the iconoclast controversy had caused a, a civil war within the Eastern Church, and the Filioque controversy was more between the East and the Western churches, and just, again, brought to light the division that had happened between the two churches and really how far apart they had come that they were now arguing about such core doctrines as the Trinity. Um, shifting topics then. Next time that I teach, my plan is to, I think we're wrapping up with the Eastern Church. We'll be looking back at the Western Church and, and talking about different monastic orders, um, such as the Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustine, the different monks that you know we sort of have a vague idea of in the Protestant Church. Um, but in light of that, we're going to look real quick today at the uh, monastic uh, order, if you will, of the Eastern Church. Um, for the Eastern Church, throughout their history, nearly all prominent figures in the church and, and the clergy started as monks, or got made a monk for a single day. But he did eventually end up in a monastery for a while. So being part of a monastery has always been a big deal for the Eastern Church. Um, whereas the West has many different monastic orders, um, which means sort of different rules, different focuses, different teachings of leaders that they follow. Um, the East typically doesn't have any such distinctions. They don't have different orders of their monasteries. Um, they all generally follow the basic guidelines and structure that was set forth in the 4th century, back in the 300s, by Basel of Caesarea. Um, there are Two great monasteries, or, or monastery areas might be a better way to put it, for the Eastern Church. Uh, the first is the Studium in Constantinople. It's like stadium and study mashed together. So think of a football game, but where we're all just going to be monks. <laughs> so the Studium in Constantinople, uh, which has home, been home uh, to over a thousand monks at a time. It's a rather large monastery. Um, and then the second one is a monastery on the peninsula of Mount Athos in northern Greece, um, which is an interesting one. According to legend, uh, the Virgin Mary spent the night on Mount Athos while she was uh, on a journey from Israel to Cyprus. And according to that legend, upon her arrival uh, at the peninsula at Mount Athos, all of the pagan shrines and idols in the, Amer in the area immediately fell to the ground and were broken apart. Mary had some interesting powers. Uh, as a result of this story, the entire peninsula was consecrated to the Virgin Mary, uh, and to this day, no woman is allowed on that peninsula. Holy ground, almost. Something like that. Where <laughs> they're worried that a woman will come tear some more things down that need to be knocked over. <laughs> Um, there are a lot of hermits that live uh, among the hills. It's, uh, like I said, we're calling this a monastery area because it's an entire peninsula. Um, so there's different hills and things centered around this Mount Athos. So a lot of hermits live there, uh, and there are multiple monastery buildings that have been built there. Uh, the most famous is called the Great Lavra. Um, by the 11th century, Mount Athos would be home to over 40,000 monks at one time, uh, spread across 20 different monasteries in the area. Uh, so it was almost a small monk republic, if you will, uh, built there. How many square miles would that have 
I didn't look to see how big that peninsula was, but yeah, 40,000 people spread out somewhat. In caves? Yeah. Uh, so today, Mount Athos is still regarded as the most important center of monasticism by the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, although the uh, number of monks there has dropped significantly. The, the last census data I saw was in the 1960s, and there were about 1,500 monks there. Um, so a long ways from the 40,000 there once were. Yeah, it's part of modern Greece still, northern Greece, but... It uh, wouldn't surprise me if the church owns all of that land. The way the church is going, I wonder if you can just identify as a man and now go there. Or as a monk. I don't know, but it's the peninsula where Mount Athos is. Um, a little bit more on monks. I don't have too much more on them. But in the Eastern Church, there's sort of an unofficial rank that a monk can attain to um, called that of elder monk. It's not an official promotion. You know, obviously, it wasn't anything that Photius got promoted to. Um, but it's more like uh, he's thought of as a guru or a sage or, or the wise man. He's the, he's the one that you go to because he's got the answers. Uh, so an elder monk is typically looked to by other monks or even those outside of the church for wisdom and guidance, you know, not that he's sitting up on top of a mountain and you have to hike to him kind of a thing, but, uh, and in fact, in particular, I think this is a little weird, but they're usually especially known for having the gift of knowing what God's will is for someone else's life. So if you want to know what you should do with your life, you go find an elder monk and he'll tell you. Yeah. So maybe after we find a pastor, we can get one of those. <laughs> Not, yes. All right, and the last topic I want to look at today, um, we're going to get done a little early because we started on time. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Is uh, some of the heretical groups that the Eastern Church faced, actual heretical groups, not the Western Church. Um, and so two of those we're going to look at are the Polisians, like Paul. It kind of looks like Pelicans, but Paul. Polisians and the Bogomils. I like that one. Bogomils. Like Bogo, buy one, get one, mill. <laughs> yep. You're welcome. You won't forget that one. <laughs> so uh, the Polisians, Policans, I don't know how to say it first, uh, they originated in Armenia and they were founded by a man named Constantine. That doesn't narrow it down. Clearly, there have been like thousands of Constantines. I'm losing track at this point. So the Polisians believed that uh, an evil inferior god had created the physical universe, which consequently meant that all matter is evil. Uh, they rejected the use of physical objects in their worship. Uh, so, of course, they were anti-icon. But beyond that, they also didn't, didn't use water for baptism, and they didn't use bread or wine for communion. I don't know how they actually do those sacraments without any substance, but apparently they do. Um, they believe that this inferior God who created everything was in fact the God of the Old Testament uh, and that Jesus is an angel who was sent by the true God to reveal the true path to salvation. 
why it took the true God so long to talk to us, I don't know. But uh, So they reject uh, significant portions of the New Testament as well, except for the Gospels, because that's about Jesus, and Paul's writings, which is why they're called the Paulicians. They're the guys who like Paul. Uh, they probably are descended from what Paul's issue, like, you know, I'm, I'm of Paul or I'm of, what was the other guy's name? Apollos. Apollos or, yeah. yeah. That's, what I'm, that's, what that's, that's, that's these guys. They're like, well, we follow Paul. We, we like Paul's teachings. That James book, <laughs> don't like that one. <laughs> or Peter. No. Um, they've often been persecuted by the Eastern Church. Uh, and have even, uh, I thought this was interesting, fought in wars against the East by allying themselves with the Muslims. But then I thought, well, did they use physical weapons in this war? Evil? Matter? I don't know. Is my friend, yeah. So the Paulicians, um, as recently as the 19th century, so the 1800s, there were still organized groups of Polisians within Armenia. Uh, I don't know that there are any more today. Kenneth? Uh, the Politicians. I was thinking more pelicans. It looks like pelicans. <laughs> All right, and then the Bogomils. The, the Bogomils originated, there's, there's a funny, these guys are great. Uh, they are, well, they're not really, but they originated in Bulgaria in the 8th century and are named after their founder, Bogomil. Um, their teaching, I think, sounds like a fairy tale. They teach that Supreme God had two sons, Satanael, the elder, and Christ, the younger. Satanael rebelled against Supreme God and persuaded many of the angels to rebel with him. He and these fallen angels then created the material world and chose to inhabit physical bodies that they had made. Guess who these fallen angels are? Us. They think that the angels fell, put themselves in bodies, and that's humans. So we're all fallen angels who followed Satan down and we made earth. Um... That kind of made us sound really bad. So later they sort of changed their story a little bit um, to say that Satan was not a son of Supreme God. Actually, I think this is worse. But Satan is himself an eternal evil God who invaded heaven and kidnapped the fallen angels and forced them into bodies. So we're actually imprisoned angels in our bodies. But we're still responsible for the creation? Or he is? I'm not sure on that version of the story. I think he is. I think he just trapped us here. Yes. Um, of course, as a result of thinking that Satan or Satan and us evil fallen angels created everything, they, like the uh, politicians, believe that all physical things are evil. Um, of course, then on the other side, we have Supreme God and Christ the Younger, they've got to respond. So um, the salvation, if you will, accomplished by Christ was freeing us from our physical bodies or being able to free us from our physical bodies so that we can return to being spiritual beings and be free from physical evils. Um, interestingly enough, these beliefs 
for both the politicians, politicians and the bogomils that, that the physical world is evil uh, have resulted in people that live very moral lives. Um, outwardly, they appear to be very religious people. Uh, they're very pleasant to get along with. Um, I actually kind of thought of groups like the Mormons that a lot of non, we'll call them atheists, a lot of secular people see Mormons as really good people because their beliefs lead them to live very moral lives, typically, or at least outwardly. Um, the same is true of the Policians and the Bogomils. In fact, it was a, a problem for the Eastern Church because so many non-church people liked, liked these other groups better, were more willing to listen to them when they uh, sent out missionaries because their missionaries seemed authentic because of the way they conducted their lives. Genuine. Yeah. yeah. Um, Genuinely wrong. Their beliefs were very wrong, but yeah. they were very they convicted were about them. Yeah. Uh, in fact... Some Protestants have even tried to suggest that the Policians and the Bogomils were the true church, pre-Reformation people, and that uh, history being written by the winners, the Eastern Church sort of made up what their beliefs were, and it wasn't actually anything like what they really believed. They were saying, oh, because of their, their outward actions, they must have been real Christians. But there's really no evidence to support that, uh, just an idea that some people have put forth. Um, but I don't think there's any reason to actually give support to that idea. Um, we're getting close to the Reformation here in our study, and we will see that there were some, some pre-reformer groups that tried to reform the church that we, I think we could argue were true church before the Reformation. Um, but I don't think the... Policians and the Bogomils were among those. Yeah, I have not yet studied some of the more current, um, call them denominations, cults, if you will, but I think it would be interesting to, if we could understand where they were influenced, if, if Joseph read the works of Bogomil or something like that at some point, or some hand-me-down of that theology to develop his ideas. Or if it's that same archangel Gabriel? No. Who's the Mormon one? Uh, Michael. Michael? No. The Mormon angel? Yeah. Um, Is it Gabriel? Well, the one that's on this It's on the temples. Yeah, it's Michael? I believe it's Gabriel. Okay. I'm going to call him a demon. But it's the same one handing these ideas down to people. To our credit, none of us know. Good job, guys. Yeah, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we have family that are Mormon, so we've... Angel Morani. Morani. Morani, yeah. That's right. The Moron. The Moron. Yes. <laughs> so it crushed them. <laughs> All right, uh, so that more or less is going to conclude looking at the Eastern Church for quite a while. Um, we're going to turn our attention back to the West and look at monasteries, look at the Crusades, and pretty quickly get to the Reformation here. So uh, any questions on what we've talked about? Are we considered the Western Church? We are from them. Yeah. We have a lot in common with them. Yeah. 
When I say Western, I, I should probably clarify at this point, the Roman Catholic Church. During that time. They were. It was about the 700s that they really became an empire. So they didn't take it. Yep. They were, they were a force to be reckoned with, and they, like, we saw the other week, they nearly destroyed the Byzantine Empire multiple times. They liked education. I mean, you saw the guy was willing to make an eternal peace treaty for the sake of one instructor. Yeah. Till his death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's pray and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning that, uh, that we're gathered here together as a, a body of your church that... Uh, we can study history, that we can see um, your hand at work uh, despite man's evil, that, are, uh, that you um, preserve your church, that you love your church, and that um, you continue to have your hand on our church. Ask that you would uh, guide us as we seek for a new leader, a new uh, pastor, that you would bring us the right man, um, and that we would be a church that loves and follows you. Um, please bless the service today and uh, whoever's bringing the message. That, uh, our hearts would be receptive to your word, that you would continue to conform us into the image of your son. I ask these in your name. Amen.